Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome, friends, to another exciting episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and today I am with my new friend and another optimist who is full of energy, who's full of deep thinking, who's full of passion, who is going to share with us a number of things today. I'm excited for this conversation. This is Mr. Steve Cook all the way over the pond in the UK. Steve, how are you this evening, my friend? I am good. I am well. It's the evening. It's 6, 10 p.m. in my evening, so I'm past my bedtime and I'm good to go. Lovely to see everyone. Awesome. Steve, it is real great to be with you today. And Man, where do we start from here? You're starting to share with me some things that are going on in your life, and I want to get to all of that. But the first thing that really comes to mind is that we had an email correspondence back and forth to get things started and get you signed up for the show. You said the word bloke in your email. And I know the different dialects over the pond in different countries. I don't know what some of these words mean. I don't know if I might be offending people or not when I say them. So can I ask you, bloke, what does that mean to you when you use the word bloke in an email? (laughs) I'm a bloke. I'm a bloke in a hat. It's uh, a bloke is English. It's London. That's where I'm born, where I was born, where I'm from. So to be a bloke, I know everybody in different parts of the world has a view of the Cockney accent, the London Cockney accent. And I'm not a Cockney, but I am London, even though I'm Irish. Irish born, but Cockney, uh, but, but London. So a bloke is an ordinary guy, somebody who's nothing particularly special on the street, working class, is might think about things in terms of class system. Certainly the UK has a class system. Um, and I'm a bloke. So I'm just an ordinary guy. It's a kind of underwhelming thing to say. I don't like being called some of the things that people call me, like genius. I prefer to be an ordinary bloke. So that's it. London English. Okay, thank you. All right. From this bloke on this side of the pond to the bloke on the other side, we're going to have a conversation now. I'm looking forward to hearing all about Steve. Can you take us back in time and just give us a little chronology of some of the things that have influenced you? Love to hear about your life. Wow, okay. Don't know how far we want to go back, but I'm, as I said, I'm London born. I was born in 1964. I was born into a London that was still very much living post World War II. It was still very much a deprived area that I lived in. I grew up in West London, not East London, which is why I'm not a Cockney. I had a mother who had been in the Royal Ballet and a father who was an aerospace engineer. And I grew up in a world of sort of art and dance and culture and, and all these things and had a really bad childhood. So my parents, like a lot of us, have suffered in our lives. And my mum, we were pretty much destitute and pretty bad time and also hated, and I now understand why, hated anything that was structure. So school for me was a really bad thing. Didn't like school, didn't like anything to do with it, but was blessed by being surrounded by mates, friends, as some of us might call them. And anyway, the upshot of all of that was that I left home at the age of 13 and I went to live in a squat. Don't know, if, don't know what, if Americans know what a squat is, but I went to live in a squat in central London in 1977. And I was very much part of the London punk movement. So punk music, 
surrounded by people in bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols, X-Ray Specs, but very much part of the London punk scene. And in 1977, London was a really violent place. So football, soccer violence, racism, tribalism, different musical cultures and things, very violent time in a very deprived part of the world. London had its very rich parts and it had its very poor parts, but it was just a hotbed of tribalism and trouble. And I was 13 and homeless and still going to school in the middle of all of that. Wow. Steve, so time out for a second. That, to me, because I was born in 1977, 46 years ago, and I was born here in in the United States. And when you're sharing that you left home at 13 and it was destitute and you were homeless and going to school, that is such a like an impossible frame to understand. Can you give a little more context? What's it like to be 13, not living at home and homeless and still going to school? Can you take us back to that year and just share what was couple of things that happened that year. It was brilliant in every way. I got to know and understand a lot of people who were like me, people who were sort of on the edge or beyond the edge, who were in the margins of society one way or another, at a time of huge social change in the UK and particularly in London. Lots of activism. So I was out on the streets the whole time. At the time, we were very much part of the anti-racism movement, the anti-Nazi league, neo-Nazis in London at that time were really bad. We were part of the anti-apartheid movement, things like that. So the punk scene, the music, the arts, the writing, the culture, everybody at the time said, and, and in fact, it was government policy at the time to say that punk was about destruction and anarchy and things like that. It was portrayed as being very bad, but it was punk is a love of all living things. That's what punk is. So I got to hang out with a lot of well-known people like Joe Strummer and people like that from bands. In fact, I lived with Joe Strummer for a bit. That was very much, it was a very energising time, really exciting. But in the middle of all of that was, as I said earlier, extreme violence. A lot of friends of mine got killed. I, in my life as a strategist, have been shot twice, stabbed twice and blown up twice. Some of that was from when I was a kid. But the outcome of all of that was whoa time out that's a whoa time out you're dropping a bomb on us right here blown up twice and shot and stabbed twice by the age of 13 you've already been shot and stabbed i'm all by the age of 13 just in my life yeah okay then we'll get to some of that i'm curious about that blown up what does that mean blown up once by an isis bomb and once by a landmine oh my gosh that's like yeah that's life where you're living at that time through this period. So that, yeah, please continue in the story. So you're 13, you're a punk, living in the punk scene in the late 70s moving forward. So yeah, please continue the story. I'm looking forward to hearing where some of these things come to head because that's, wow, this is such a story. I think where it gets serious was in 1978 when I was 14. And in London in 1978, there was a very famous music festival called Rock Against Racism. And it was headlined by all the punk bands. And a lot of people over the years have asked me what I remember of that very famous music festival because I was so central, very young, but central to that scene. And I say the obvious thing, which is I don't remember anything of it. (laughs) And the reason why I don't remember anything of it was because I wasn't there. And everybody goes, why weren't you there? You were so central to that scene. Why weren't you there? And the reality is that three days before the festival, I was on my own in North London, and I was defending an Indian supermarket that about 30 neo-Nazi thugs were trying to firebomb. 
and I was on my own. And I got attacked by these neo-Nazis, and they had crowbars, iron bars, and they basically took me apart and beat me up, smashed everything, pretty much every bone in my body at the age of four. So I was in hospital. And so the irony, and I was in hospital for nearly a year, but the irony that I missed the Rock Against Racism Festival because I've been taken apart by racists is quite an interesting thing. But out of all of that, the whole experience made me start to have an acute understanding of what can happen to people when they're trying to do good, when they're being kind, but also people who are in the margins, people who sometimes have no choice but to do things and think things that are not great. They're forced into a situation. When friends were dying of drug overdoses, alcoholism, being stabbed, being shot, things like that. You watch people around you disappear. And you're thinking, how is this possible? London, one of the richest, best, biggest cities in the Western world, how are these things going on? And so my understanding about social injustice grew up at that point. So I was very young. I was only 13, 14. But the idea, and I always talk about social injustice, not social justice, the things us human beings do to each other. And I always ask the question, in whose or what's name are we doing things? doesn't matter what that is. Who are we doing things in the name of? What does that mean? And so I had this acute understanding at that age. So, wow, 1978, Rock Against Racism, all of that happened just like three days beforehand. And then you were in the hospital recovering from these horrible injuries for a better part of a year. And then what happened next after that? Your body somewhat healed, I suppose. Did you get back out there? What's the next chapter? So I got back out there and had an attitude, (laughs) which you might imagine I had. And I went through school. I finished school. I came out really highly qualified for somebody that commuted to school from his home, from his squat in London. And the big debate amongst me and my mates was what are you going to do now? And there was only really one option. And the option was to go to art school. So I went to art school. I went to one of the most famous art schools in the world. And I studied conceptual thinking at art school. So I didn't want to learn how to paint or draw or anything like that. I I studied conceptual thinking. And I studied conceptual thinking in an art school that was about as radical as it's possible to get. It was the most radical art school in the world at the time. We didn't have to do any coursework. We didn't have tutors. We had mentors. And I spent most days for about five years with a couple of people, both a guy called Paul Peter Peach, a U.S. artist who was very political, been involved in all sorts of things in 1960s, 70s America in the peace movement, very much involved in a lot of things around the Vietnam War. Very famous guy, Paul Peter Peach, if you go and look him up. The the most famous guy you've probably never heard of in terms of culture and, and certainly American culture. But he was one of my mentors. But my other mentor was a guy that you probably have heard of, who's um, Stanley Kubrick, the film director. So I spent a lot of time with Stanley Kubrick. In fact, I was with Stanley Kubrick when he was making a film called Full Metal Jacket, a lot of which was filmed in the East End of London. It was about the Battle of Hue in the Vietnam War. So I was with him during that time. But that was my life. My life was as an outrageous art student, doing everything in my power to be more outrageous than anybody else. But really heavily involved in all sorts of creative work, conceptual thinking work around 
social issues. And in fact, if you go to places like Auschwitz concentration camp now, you'll see my work in Auschwitz on permanent display. And it's work that I did when I was a student. That was in a very exciting time. That was my life up until 1983-84. And then six months or just over six months before the end of my time at art school, I was in a car crash. Oh, man. Okay. Wow. Tell us all about the car crash. What happened and what happened next? If, if you want overcoming trauma, you've come to the right place. <laughs> I was in a car crash with three friends and it was in England. It was on a motorway and the car rolled a lot. It ended up upside down. I ended up half out of the car, half in the car and my legs were all smashed up in the car. The entire weight of the car was on my left boot and I had steel toe cap boots on and the boot was bent backwards because my toes were on the ground and the engine of the car particularly was on my heel. And the steel toe cap inside my boot actually amputated my toes. (laughs) And I'm upside down, I'm half out of the car and the car's upside down and two of my friends were trapped in the back of the car, but they were okay. And they were saying, Steve, you're going to be all right, mate. You're going to be all right. I was really smashed up. They weren't. And unfortunately, the car blew up. The fuel tank had ruptured, the car blew up, and my two friends got incinerated. That was that. <laughs> it blew up on you? That's when you say you got it, you blew up too. No, I absorbed, the back of the car blew up, the fuel tank ruptured, so it caught fire. And so my friends who were in the back, the fire got them. I watched them get incinerated. And it's still, I've had nightmares about that ever since. I, I don't do it now, but I used to wake up pretty much every night screaming. And I have visceral fear of things like can't um, says that. But at the point, the rest, because this is pre-mobile phones, so it was in the middle of the night, there was no traffic about, so no one called emergency services or anything. And it took about, and apparently it took about an hour and a half before the rescue services turned up, because funny enough, the fire actually attracted people's attention in the middle of the night. So apparently, when the rescue services turned up, Bearing in mind my top half is outside the car, pouring the rain, middle of the night. My top half's okay. The fire's behind me and my legs are in the mangled wreck of the car. But when the rescue services turned up, they found me reading a poetry book. In the middle of all this carnage, I was reading a poetry book. They found a score mark in the road. We would call it tarmac. And I'd ripped off all my fingernails trying to get out of the car but when they found me i was reading a poetry book and everybody says the same thing that i had shut down i had completely shut down i could not cope in any way with what i had seen what i'd heard what i was experiencing and so i shut down ended up again in again for about another year recovering from this and i went back to finish art school i went back to the very end of my time at art school i won't bore you with how that ended but that was quite exciting but the outcome of all of that from the car crash was i became somebody who didn't care i didn't mind very much if i lived or if i didn't i became what in the uk we would call a have a go hero because i didn't care 
And in fact, I jumped in front of a knife fight. Two people were having a knife fight and I was a have-a-go hero. I stopped somebody stabbing somebody else. I jumped in between the two people having the fight and I got stabbed for that. But I came out of that with all sorts of things. Survivor guilt, obviously. Survivor guilt. I had been a keen sports person. I'd been a squash champion at the time of the car crash and my legs were so smashed that was the end of my squash. In fact, I still claim I'm undefeated champion because nobody ever beat me. But uh, squash. So that was that. And I came out with a very clear view that cars are really bad, but you can't get trapped in a motorbike. So I started riding motorbikes fast. <laughs> okay. And I thought, okay, I'm going to live life. And came out of art school and immediately got a job because I was so outrageously creative. I got a job in an advertising agency called J. Walter Thompson, which at the time was the biggest independent ad agency in, in the world. There I am, smashed up with a very strange attitude to life. I already knew I was a non-linear thinker. I see patterns and links, highly creative, in one of the most famous advertising agencies that's ever lived, in Soho, in central London, flipping between Soho in London and Madison Avenue in New York, at the age of 22, riding motorbikes and basically saying, I'm going to live life. That was it. Wow, Steve, it sounds that from 13 to 22, you have had the world thrown at you. You've had so many experiences that what you might say the normal person cannot really relate to, or maybe many people can't. Maybe I'm living in a bubble I don't understand, but it sounds like you, you have been through the gauntlet. And now at 22, you're ready to take off, if you will. You're in a good place, it sounds like. Would you call it a good place? Does that resonate with you, the idea of good place? Yeah, everything I'd learned at art school and everything I had been as a child, everything I'd learned in my early teenage years involved in punk taught me, and this is a phrase that many people have heard, but I, I learned it, never seek permission, seek forgiveness. Stuff. In fact, very recently I've been describing how I, I will jump out of the aeroplane and I don't care whether I've got a parachute on or not, I'm going to jump. And other people around me who care can check whether I'm wearing a parachute or not, but I really don't care. So I'm going to jump anyway. And that made me, all of that made me a creative who was going to go into a very commercial, very big world with very big clients as a creative and build campaigns and ideas that were going to blow everybody away. And I didn't care. And in fact, I used to say, I spent the 1980s, I became a creative director in some very famous advertising agencies uh, throughout the 1980s, won all the awards, the ad industries version of the Oscars and things like that, did all that. But my attitude in the 80s, and the 80s was the last decade really of the mad men in advertising, the really crazy people. And I was part of that sort of thing. And in fact, my first creative director said to me, I was only 22, and my first creative director said that when the client hears is that the creative director is going to be in the meeting, they should be really scared. That, yes. yes. I grew up in, and I became that guy. I would do really big pitches for very substantial client business, all off the back of you know creative ideas for campaigns. And I would be sharing this with senior marketing directors and sales directors and brand people and so on in big client businesses. And if a marketing director said to me, I don't like it in terms of the idea. I would actually say, I don't give a whether you like it or not, because you're not the client, you're not the target audience. I don't care about you. It's not just because you've got the money doesn't mean that your opinion is important because we've got bigger things to do. Okay. 
Wow, straight up visionary. Love it, man. I love it. <laughs> my, my childhood, my youth, everything about me. I'm the luckiest man alive. I am the luckiest man in the world because I've been able to lead a life that's seen really dark things but has seen really bright things. And because of my brain, I'm able to navigate across the whole lot. I have a very unique brain, apparently. I don't know why, but I do. And so very young, 22, 23, I'm able to be that guy. Absolutely. What do you mean by unique brain? I love the way your brain works. I love your storytelling. I, I love everything you share in your life so far. A man who is the most blessed person in the world who's been through the stuff, like the really hardest stuff. And you have such a great attitude. So talk about your brain when you say it's different. I love it. Tell us about it. I've always known. I've always known that I'm an outsider. I've written and we've only covered into my sort of 20s. There's a lot more. You know, I'm 59. So there's a lot of life that I've lived since then. But my, I always knew I was the outsider. I've written more over the years about the mavericks, the creatives, the people who are outside the norm two of my most hated words in the English language. Anything that is the norm, anything dull and boring is just not for me. And it shouldn't be for anybody else either. Where's the zest for life? And so my brain, and we'll get on and talk about now. So as I said to you in the last two weeks, I've had some very important news, which relates to my brain. And it's weird now to think how many times I've written about how the lunatics should take over the asylum. And it turns out I'm one of them. My brain intuitively sees patterns and links and context. Somebody said to me the other day that if you go into the Sistine Chapel, I don't know if anybody in your audience has been in the Sistine Chapel, but if you go to the Sistine Chapel, it's so amazing that most people can only look at a bit of it. They can only focus on one thing or another thing in the Sistine Chapel. And there are some people who can see a lot of things in the Sistine Chapel and try to piece them together. I only see one thing. I only see the Sistine Chapel. I see the whole lot as one image, as one thing. And that is true for organizations. It's true for markets. It's true for social systems. And because of that, I'm rapidly able to pull a whole load of different things together and come to some conclusions. And my favorite place is what I like to call the space between. The spaces, there are things that are known, there are things that are understood, but my home is in the spaces between, those grey areas where no one really knows, people can make assumptions, but no one really knows. So that's what I mean by my brain. It just does that. And I talk too much, and I people sometimes accuse me of interrupting, but it's only because I'm bored now, and I've heard everything that everybody in the room's got to say, and I've assimilated it really fast. And I've drawn conclusions already. I've created visions for massive organizations around the world over the years in an hour. And they've had lasting effects. I, I created I, visioning for one organization on a $70,000 spend that in six months delivered $1.4 billion worth of, of contract revenue in half an hour about the entire way that future cities would be organized through technology. And I did it in an hour. Whew. Wow. I'm curious what kind of stuff excites you or what do you like to think about with so much brain power or so much opportunity to see things just through a different lens? Where do you like to invest your time thinking? My career has taken me mm -hmm. from being a concept creative in advertising, which I left in the mid-90s. And I decided that it was boring 
you can only have so many amazing photo shoots all around the world and deal with so many amazing budgets and products and services and businesses and things like that before you eventually get bored of it. And I got bored and I realized that I'd always been fascinated by chess. As I think I said to you, I think about 30 moves ahead in chess. I've always been fascinated by history and particularly military history. I've always read, I, in fact, I only read history books and particularly military history books. And I'd always been amazed by the impacts of war across society, economic, social system, but also around strategy, military strategy, how wars are fought. And I had understood that I was an innate strategist. I naturally see things that are strategic. And so I became a strategist. And I've been an organizational strategist since about 1996. There was a bit of a transitionary period out of the world of advertising and into the world of strategy. And I have been an organizational strategist for most of my career. And my work has always been to work across systems. I'm a Okay. People sometimes say I'm a systems thinker. I say I'm not a systems thinker at all. I'm a systemic thinker. It's a fundamentally different thing. Back to the Sistine Chapel, I only see one thing. And the one thing that I see above all others is society. I go back to my roots. So I'm a strategist who sees things in patterns, who's come from a background, a young child and a teenager, a background that exposed me to quite a lot of different types of social injustice. So that's what I think about. But I should also tell you, I've got five children and a granddaughter. And in fact, I have just got married this year and I now have six children because I've got a wonderful stepson. So I've also been concentrating on them. <laughs> wow. Five kids, grandkid, newly married with another, with a stepchild and I love that you just gave us that personal part of it. And I want to go back to the social injustice part because you've experienced it when you were on the punk scene in 77, that very first year. And then when you were 14, when you were saving the Indian store, trying to save the Indian store, and you got beat up by 30 Nazis that put you in the hospital for a year. Social injustice, you've seen it in a number of levels and you can see it from a high level. I wonder, what is it that you see? Because I see what the news wants me to see on Twitter and whatever the stories are that are out there. But what is it that you see? And how might you define social injustice right now in your lens, Steve? Social injustice is the consequence of linear, binary, systemic fails. Fails in systems mm. made by humanity, human beings, that are failing human beings. And there's nothing particularly unusual about that attitude of mind. There are lots of people all over the world that are saying systems are failing. But I'm saying it's a systemic fail. I reached a point in 2009 where I was intuitively a senior strategist with lots of big organizations. And I was blessed to work in organizations that were business, that were governments, and that were in civil society, big charities, NGOs, institutions, that kind of thing. So I was blessed to have seen different types of social systems. I always came at it from the ordinary person, the bloke's perspective. How do these big systems and structures affect ordinary people like me? And it's beyond most people. You walk out into the street in your local town, in my local city, and most people don't care. They don't think about, or they do care, but they don't know what to do about the things that they see going on around them. Social injustice doesn't have to be the really obvious known one. 
Titans. There are social justices going on all over the place. I was speaking with a street cleaner in my local city where I live in, which is Glasgow in Scotland. And I was speaking to a street cleaner and I was asking him some questions about how he sees homelessness in the city of Glasgow. And he gave me some really, because he's out there in the streets first thing in the morning. And I was asking him some questions and I said, thank you. I'm pretty convinced I was the first person that's ever said thank you to that street cleaner. Wow. I only taught, and my five children are all adults now, and they're all grown up. I'm an empty nester. One of them has a grand, has my daughter, had my granddaughter. I taught them two things. I only ever taught my kids two things. Be enthusiastic about everything. And if you end up being a toilet street, toilet cleaner at a railway station in central London, be the best toilet cleaner in a railway station in central London that you can be. That's all I ever taught my kids. I never encouraged them to do I mean, they were just, they were around me. They were seeing life. But be enthusiastic about everything. There comes a point where you can't be enthusiastic about stuff anymore. So you stop. But at least you give it a go. At least you try. And all five of my children have come out of school, of university. They're all really doing well in their careers. They're doing amazing things. Like one of my daughters is an astro, things like that. I never said anything about any of that. I never said go off and be a lawyer or be a doctor or be an astrophysicist or be a creative. I never even said be a creative, which was my career or a strategist or in business or anything. I just said be enthusiastic. And it takes the heat off. All of my kids have come back to me. What are your kids now that they're grown? They come back to you and, and what do they say now? Dad, you're fucked. Oh, I'm oh, joking. Ah, 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 ah. Oh. I mean, and one day, God willing, my dream is they come back to me and they say thank you. And their internal dialogue says that I'm loved and I'm worthy. And we can go together and hike the Appalachian Trail one day, or we can sit around a campfire and share stories one day. But yeah, thank you for the laugh. It's brilliant. When your children become adults, really adults they're out in the world doing their thing and the way that your relationship with them changes you have conversations if you're lucky enough to have children if you're lucky enough to have a good relationship with your children i had a dreadful relationship with my father my father is the only human being on planet earth i hate which is really bad news (laughs) that's that but i say about my father that he was a horrible human being but he taught me the best thing of all the one thing above all other things in my life was actually gifted to be by my dad because he showed me how to be a brilliant father because I do everything the opposite to the way my dad did. Dude, I love it, man. Yeah, I love the attitude. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And I had two choices. I, I could either go down a road where I became like him or I could go down a road where I became where I was completely different. And I chose that. And I'm grateful for that. And my children have come back to me. My two eldest daughters have come back to me and have spoken about how I just freed them. I freed them to explore, to not have any pressure on them, to not feel that they were going to let anyone down. And I don't care about my children letting me down. It's letting themselves down that I worry about and always have. Who am I? I'm nothing. They're the ones that are doing all this. I'm just nurturing a little bit. 
when my children were children, I had all the conversations with them that parents have about drugs and alcohol and sex and these good things. But I was a realist. I knew there was going to come a point where they'd go to a party with their friends and they'd be exposed to these things. So I wasn't going to say, don't do drugs. I wasn't going to say that. I said to them, if you're going to try these things, just be responsible about it. Give it a go. And of course, if you bring these things in now on another day, somebody could say that to one of their kids and their kids end up being a smack addict. Who knows? But in my case, I just made judgment calls about my kids. And I think there is too much pressure in society for a number of different reasons to conform, to be successful, to go down certain career paths. I've always had a maxim that is if you try and sell, you won't sell anything. And in fact, I've worked with many very complex sales teams in organizations, and I've encouraged them to stop being sales organizations. And in fact, I've even said, and I've written over many years about that complicated businesses, big enterprise scale businesses should lose marketing, lose sales, lose customer service, lose customer experience, lose the whole lot, get rid of the whole lot. I'm not saying get rid of the people. I'm just saying get rid of the silos and replace the silos with a thing called a buyer enablement community. Because that's what you're doing. I'm not going to try and sell this pen to you. I'm going to try and encourage you to buy into an idea. And it's an old maxim, but it's one that I like. And I'll say it to you, Matt. What is that? What am I holding in my hand here? What is that? And a lot of people would say that's a pen. It's a pen. If I was a product manager in a business, I'd be trying to work out the metrics for the costs and production things and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a pen. But I could say to you, it's a method of writing. And you could say to me, it's a bit old school. It's a bit, we've got computers now and laptops and things. But what I prefer to say to you is that it's a way of expressing your true feelings. Yeah, love it. I love it. And none of this is original to me, really, but I suppose I'm at the extreme end. I had an evaluation done many years ago, and the evaluation said that I was 100% of everything. I was 100% emotional, 0% rational. It was a Myers-Briggs evaluation. I don't know if people know the Myers-Briggs, but I had a big Myers-Briggs. Yeah. I've had a lot of evaluations on my brain, and the Myers-Briggs evaluation said that I was at the I can't remember what, what my parameters were now, but I was at the extreme end of everything. I'm 100% loyal, 100%, right up until the point that I feel really badly treated, and I'm 100% gone. <laughs> I've left the room. My favorite quote, Matt, is you can always spot the moral victor because they're the ones lying on the ground with their noses broken. The moral victor gets smacked in the face. There we go. What's my takeout? My takeout is society is fundamentally broken because it has been built on 500 years of linear thinking. And what needs is very top-down leadership, bottom-up leadership, side-to-side leadership, temporary leadership by entitlement, meritocracy. These things are all binary. Education is binary. The things we learn at school are designed to put us into a world of work which is binary. I think it was Peter Seng who said in the mid-90s, what's the first thing you learn at school? To perform to the needs of the controllers. And what's the first thing you learn when you go into the workplace? To perform to the needs of the controllers. We're being set up for a linear career, and that doesn't work. 
My work has for a long time, since 2009, which was a particular year where I had a kind of epiphany off the back of a lot of experience of organizations in the world, which was that society is profoundly broken. How is society broken? You had the epiphany in 2009. How is it broken? What was the epiphany in 2009? I think we came to this conversation today to talk about this right now. You just got my hair on back of my neck standing up. I like where you're going here. So let's talk about how society is broken. Okay, so first of all, the epiphany was that I woke up one morning and I drew a three-circle Venn diagram on a piece of paper. And I love a three-circle Venn diagram. It's it's pretty much my favorite thing in the world. And in the first circle in my three-circle Venn diagram, and you're probably going to have to bleep some of this out, but my first circle, I wrote business systems fucked. In my second circle, I wrote government systems fucked. And in the third circle, I wrote civil society systems fucks. And at the intersection between the three circles, I just wrote the word fucks three times. And at the sweet spot in the middle of the Venn diagram, I wrote, we are all truly fucks. Yes. Wow. Thank you for all those bleeps. Take us forward, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The takeout from all of that was from what I had experienced, bearing in mind I had been at the highest levels of strategy within organizations that are almost entirely planning-based. All of them are planning. I often say that there is no such thing as strategic planning, that there is strategy and there is planning but they are two fundamental things. The problem with most organizations in the world, and obviously business is the obvious one type of social system, business is a social system. But when you think about business tends to be rooted in planning. And I was always the guy that would come in and be a a true strategist. I'm known as a grand strategist because I see across things rather than down into things. And so my work has always been to take organizations, C-suite, leadership, government leaders and so on, out of themselves and put them into a kind of visionary state. And I don't mean that in any kind of spiritual way, but to put them into a visionary state, which cannot happen when you are primarily thinking about planning or outcomes, metrics, budgets, profits, things like that. And so society is broken because people can only think in linear ways. They can only think about competition, which is an amazing thing. When you really look at what competition does, they can only think about things in terms of power, and they can only really, no matter how much work has been done, and I've been involved in future of the corporation programs for years, they can only think of profit as a financial outcome. Profit. And so when I say, and I talk about okay. things a lot, okay. I, I talk about how we need to reframe profit because I think about 12 capitals states social capital, intellectual capital, living capital, things like that. You can profit from all of them. It's just financial. And so when we go to the average chief financial officer of a major corporate and ask them to consider profits, they will be thinking about it from a financial base. A lot of things come together here, Matt, because a lot of work has been done around this for for a number of years by me and, and the people I work with. In 2009, I wrote what has turned out to be quite an important thing. And I said that we had to lose some words from the language. 
Um, some of them swear words that you have to bleep out. But other than that, we have to lose some words from the language. And we should lose words like employee, employer, leader, manager, customer, consumer, voter, donor, beneficiary, philanthropist, investor. We should lose these words and we should lose some other words. Business, government, charities, schools. We should lose those words too. And we should replace all these words just with two words, citizen and organisation. And then we can start to really do something that the world has never actually seen before, which is create a democracy. And so there's a lot of work done in the world by many cleverer people than me around what citizenship really means, about what citizens' assemblies really mean, about how government works and how governance works. I refuse to use the word politics because politics is, an, is a party okay. political construct and it gets away from the real... Everybody's posturing and playing games to win elections and win votes, but nobody's really thinking about what governance actually means. And so when we look at, so say, Western democracies and we look at what's happening, my wife is a US citizen. I got married in the US only in this last summer. I still have a really hard time understanding what zucchini is. I call it a courgette. So the translation between British English and American English, and in fact, I'm Irish, so Irish English is really quite interesting. But so what's happening? And in the middle of it, ordinary people, citizens of the world, sit in different parts of the world, are not being able to really exercise their own creativity because most of us have had that beaten out of us at school and natural curiosity about the world, critical thinking, um, systems thinking and so on should be, in my view, the most important thing that anybody gets taught at school. And we have that beaten out of us because we need to conform to the linear systems that have been created. Now, I might be sounding a bit like an anarchist, I might be sounding like somebody that wants to uh, reject systems and things like that. That's not true. Well, yeah, yeah. To someone who's listening, who is part of the machine, who's part of the system, who's in the matrix, but you're making perfect sense to me and to our listeners because this is the stuff we love to think about. So please continue. I love your systems thinking. I, I feel like you wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline, and Peter, actually, he should be talking to you because everything you're hearing, I'm hearing on a very high level. So I love it. Let's go back to my roots. I studied conceptual thinking. I only ever think in concepts, ideas. I just chuck ideas out. It's down to other people to decide whether they like those ideas or not, whether they can have a debate around those ideas. Now, we'll talk about The Undaunted, which is one of the organizations that I founded in, in a minute, but a number of things, we, we have various missions. One of them is the power to shape discourse. We all have it. Whether we choose to exercise it or not is another thing. I have always, going back to social injustice, why are people unheard? Citizens, why are they unheard? Why do people not speak? Why is it that if they find the courage to speak, why aren't they being listened to? Who isn't listening? And so there are some very obvious examples around this in every country in the world, minority groups, marginalised groups disabled group. I don't really like the word disabled. I'm disabled and I don't particularly like the term. So I'd sooner be alternatively enabled. That's my way of thinking about it. How do we arrive at a state 
where in the world most people aren't represented, most people don't have voice, and therefore it's very difficult for most people to exercise this really important thing that the world is talking about right now, agency. How can we gain mm. agency? And so for me, by losing words like employee, employer, leader, we start to democratise humanity. And the, the example I used back in 2009, Matt, would be, for instance, you, there you are, you're in a major organization, a business, and you're responsible for customer experience, okay? So you're trying to come up with ever cleverer ways to give me, a customer of your business, great customer experience, because you want me to buy more pens, because you sell pens. Oh, yeah, wait, 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 wait. So you give me lots of great, and there's wonderful things, and if you've ever read books on nudge theory, you'll understand how some of this works and how this all goes on. So the nudge, and it's a maxim of advertising. Let the viewer or the reader of a commercial think that they made the joke, they created the joke, because then they'll be more loyal to the idea. It's true with being a strategist as well. Let the client think they came up with the idea. Because if they think they came up with the idea, they'll be loyal to it. Don't preach to anybody. Don't tell people what they should have. It's, it's a consultancy model that I don't like. Let them come up with the idea themselves. That's much. That's a much more interesting way of thinking about things. But let's imagine, there you are, you're head of customer experience in the business, and I'm a customer of that business. One way or another, you're trying to do something to me to make me do something. You're trying to impress me or make me feel happy with your brand, your business, your products and services, so that I will buy them for money, or that I will buy into your brand and then talk to my friends about it, or something like that. But that's a very binary yes. and transactional way of looking at it. But we live in a world where human beings and systems and states, we are all interconnected. We're all interdependent. And so we should all be working together. Yeah. So words like collaboration. I hear that word about a thousand times a day, and almost nobody knows what it actually means. Co-creativity. Almost nobody knows how to co-create because everybody's too busy trying to outdo each other. Everybody's trying to be competitive with each other. So that isn't co-creativity. How can it be? And so the idea that if I'm the customer of your business and you're an employee of that business or you're a leader of that business, we're actually on the same side if we're both citizens. We should be working together. We should be losing artificial divides, not only within businesses, but between businesses and their customers, but also between businesses and other businesses and businesses and other parts of society, government and civil society, because it's about time we all grew up and started working together. You make it sound so simple. Yeah, let's stop being in the sandpit and throwing our diapers at each other and start being grown-ups. But by being grown-ups, let's actually become more yeah. childlike. Let's become more playful, more curious. The Undaunted talks about power, the power to shape discourse, but we also talk about joy as an act of resilience. We're all too serious, mm. we're all too earnest, earnestly trying to sell more stuff or change the world or we're all activists or we're all trying to make more money. Or we're trying Yeah, we can do all these things. I'm not anti-capitalism at all. Far from it. Make as much money as you want. Just do it in a really good way. 
So we have a thing with the Undaunted talks about the fact that there are 8 billion social entrepreneurs on planet Earth. Most of them don't know mm. it yet. We also talk about how there are 8 billion... Steve, people. talk more about... Sorry. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. we talk about how... No, please continue billion, about the, the Undaunted. Yeah, tell us more. So the Undaunted comes from a combination of three things that have been created over time. So I have been building these things since 2015. I drew that three-circle Venn diagram in 2009. And from that day, I had my mantra, which the polite way of saying my mantra is citizen-empowered impacts in society. How do we impact as citizens in society. The way that I now always talk about this is we're engaged in the great unfair. So you'll have to bleep that out. The funny thing is that almost nobody really understands me when I talk about citizen-empowered impacts in society, but everybody understands me when I talk about the great unfuck. Everybody. Business leaders, billionaires, heads of government. I've recently, in the last few months, been blessed to have good time with some US, some ambassadors to the US from different countries in the world. I happen to be blessed to be at the 100th birthday party of a guy called Mikhail Grigic, who happened to be the guy that founded the Californian wine industry. He was the guy that put fake French wine labels on Californian wine. And when it was tasted in Paris, the French all thought it was French. And so so I happened to be at his 100th birthday party in in Napa Valley earlier this year. And I spoke to the billionaires there about the great unfuck and i spoke with a puerto rican taxi driver drive going into san francisco airport and i speak to homeless people in scotland and farmers in afghanistan and i say the same thing and everybody gets it my mum who's very posh will often and she's 89 years old and she'll often say Stephen, i don't know why you feel the need to swear And she's the only person that doesn't seem to get what I do, which is fine because she's my mum. That's great. But we're all about the Undaunted started being four years between 2015 and 19. I gave up work and I claim I haven't worked since 2015, but I started to research, seriously research where those fail points are between business, government and civil society. And in that four years... We found about 150 fail points in society across societal systems. And I was just doing this on my own. I'm not academic. I'm not part of any institution or anything. So I did that work, and I created about 150 gaps. These are things that the Undaunted calls the monsters. We talk about dancing with monsters, and these gaps are the monsters. Okay. And I put those out around the world to a lot of people that I know. And I said, I found these things. These, for me, are real big fail points across society, anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter where you are. And everybody came back to me at the end of 2019 and said, yep, we see these things. They could be business leaders. I was talking with Maasai elders in Kenya, city leadership in U.S. cities, things like that. And they all said, yep. And so at the, at the end of 2019, a few of us sat around and thought, no, oh, no, we've got a real problem here because we know what the problems are. And I've got a 100-page document just on toxic mm-hmm. leadership, just on what that looks like. 
and we have 150 of these things. Mm. So we set up a thing called institution. Unstitution. And institutions roll. Wow, okay. Yeah, uh, because we're punk, I'm punk, and, and the world is never going to be fixed by people. We, can, we all need to be kind to each other, but it's never going to get fixed by people skirting around each other and being too sensitive to everybody else's needs. It's only going to improve by being kind to each other, but in a really good way. We have to overcome the people that want to keep things exactly the same as they've always been. And we have to overcome the people who are the kind of change makers of the world who are going off down some rabbit holes that none of the rest of us can follow them down because we don't understand it. So we have to be for everyone. We have to be for ordinary people like me, ordinary people like you, people that don't understand nerdy intellectual language any more than they understand how to become billionaires and make lots of profit because they don't understand business or they don't know how to be government leaders because it's the mm -hmm. ordinary people out on the streets who are the ones that are actually going to make change happen. And if change doesn't happen, we're all going to burn. So the undaunted is a combination. So this is the philosophy of the I've I've speechless and I love it and I want to keep going on it and – we're almost at the end of our first scheduled time, Steve. We might have to come back and do this again because I don't think that we're, we've even gotten down the rabbit hole as deep as I want to, and we're right there. So maybe right now it, it might be time for a book pause until our next conversation. And until then, where can we find out about you online and follow you and, and learn from you, Steve? Cool. The Undaunted is out in the world. It's born off a lot of things. You can find us on theundaunted.global out there on that internet you can find me on um, linkedin and from the 8th of january you can find our community and you can find all our action groups we've got a number of those that we're starting on the 8th of january we're launching our community various people say we should be a movement we we're not we're never going to be a movement because if you call yourself a movement you're not a movement other people can call you a movement, but you can't call yourselves that. As far as I, so we're not a movement. We're just a bunch of people who are trying to unfuck the world. So there's that. So you can find the undaunted.global. You can find us on Medium. You can find Undaunted on Medium. And that's us. And you can find us all around the world because we've got offices in many different parts of the world. Wow. Also, the undaunted.global is the place to go to start. We can also find you on LinkedIn. Yeah. And Steve, it's been a real treat just being your present listening to talk about systems thinking because I don't get a chance to have a conversation all the time around systems and around how the world is uh, up. And it's because there are some people making decisions and not having the others put their feedback and hearing them. I love that you're able to encourage us to wrap things, wrap things up today. I have a couple last questions right here around. I'd love to just start off with this. If there's a book that uh, you might encourage or recommend that's had an impact on you? What might one book be that's had an impact on you, Steve? I've never read any book on business. I, Catch-22 is my favorite book. Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Oh, Heller. Yeah. <laughs> Sun, nice. Sun Tzu's Art of War, of course. Everybody should read that. And everything that you can find that's poetry. Everything poetry. If I were to ask you, I mean, you were born of the punk 
era in London back in the late 70s and early 80s. So you might have uh, some recommendations for us. If there's a song or a, some music that really hires you, fills your bucket, what's a genre or a song or a band, just something that really gets you going? So it's interesting. London punk, my favorite band was neither from London or punk. So a band that some of your audience might have heard of, Joy Division, the band Joy Division, who were from Manchester in England, had a singer called Ian Curtis. And in fact, Ian Curtis died about five days before that Joy Division were about to start their first US tour in 1980. So he died very young. And um, his lyrics are phenomenal you can they're studied in universities in english literature courses and so joy division are without a doubt my favorite english band but my favorite american band is sonic youth go and listen to some sonic youth sonic sonic youth i'm going to spotify right away man right away sonic youth and joy division i'm going to go there right away thank you and last question when you hear the name of our show the eternal optimist podcast what does eternal optimist mean to you the only life state worth having <laughs>